the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast, hosted by 360 Energy. John Lenartz is Vice President Environment, Energy and Real Estate for Samuel. He has responsibility for energy management activities for Samuel, which has over 85 sites. He has been involved in energy management projects since 2002. These activities have not only reduced energy consumption and cost, but have resulted in reduced GHG emissions, which not only help achieve Samuel's goals, but those customers that strive to reduce their carbon footprint. In 2016, John petitioned the Association of Energy Engineers, also known as AEE, and established the Hamilton chapter and has served as a chapter president since its inception. In 2017, at the World Energy Engineering Congress, the AEE named John the Energy Engineer of the Year for Canada. Now let's get into the episode with John. Welcome back, Dave and John. I also would like to welcome back our guest this week, John Lenartz, Vice President of Environment, Energy and Real Estate at Samuel Sun Co. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me and allowing me to speak about what we're doing at uh, Samuel. I look forward to it. So we have quite a few questions prepared for you today regarding how you have implemented an energy and carbon plan at your organization. To start us off, John, can you tell us about Samuel, yourself and your role at Samuel? Sure. So, so Samuel has been around since 1855. We're a fifth generation privately held company and we're a, a leading manufacturer, processor and distributor of metal and industrial products. We've got 15 different business divisions that are in around 90 locations in Canada and the US and Mexico. And on the service center side, we provide coil sheet, plate, long products cut to customer specifications. And on the manufacturing side, we manufacture anything from carbon and stainless tubing to roll form product, aluminum extrusions, fabricated pressure vessels, steel and plastic strapping, hand tools, different packaging supplies, or automated packaging systems. It's, it's quite the gambit of, of a product offering. As for me, I've been with Samuel coming up on 26 years. I've held a variety of roles. I'm actually in my second stint with my current portfolio. I've been in it now for about four years, but I had previously done a four-year stint with one of our other manufacturing divisions. So I'm actually really excited to have you as a guest because you do have a long history in this work. And I think you've got a lot of knowledge to share with our listeners because of your experience in this field. Can, can I ask you the question, how would you define energy management? Because I think when we talk to customers, everyone has a different perspective or different bent. And I'd be interested in how you define it because uh, think our listeners are going to find out that you've been really successful in many areas, but it all comes to how it's defined and, and how you look at it. So could you share with us? Sure. And and Dave, I'm, I'm going to share with you the definition that was shared to me or with me by somebody else on this podcast many years ago, and it, it just stuck with me. So, so to me, energy management is energy usage and efficiency, and that's coupled with energy supply management. And when the two of those work together, then energy can become controllable. And that's the message that we really like to send to our teams is that energy really is controllable if you view it this way. It's, it's a great response because we find most customers think that energy is just a fixed overhead and not controllable. 
Uh, and so hearing you saying that, and, and I'm sure our listeners are going to hear how you do that. I think they'll, they'll, they'll learn a lot from this. So thank you for sharing that. So John, based on the definition, we find a lot of customers actually, and it's reinforced that they should really have one person who has full responsibility and take on this. It, it's deemed, quite frankly, as an energy manager. And so because of your experience, and you've actually been acknowledged as being one of the leaders in Canada in this field, what is your thought of just having one person responsible or, or what has worked for you of making this actually work in your organization, organization to achieve sustainable results? So this may be a, a bit of a long-winded answer because I have been involved with energy management, not specifically in a dedicated role, but through my operational background. And it, it really was a culmination of past experiences. And so, you know, going back to the early 2000s, when I was working with one of our divisions, we had four plants, all with similar equipment. All four plants were heavy energy and water users. We used a lot of electricity and a lot of natural gas and a lot of water. And we had a corporate team that was formed that had representatives from all four plants. But each plant then also had its own energy team. And the teams at the corporate level used to share what was working for them and what wasn't working for them so that the other plants could implement the same sort of practices because we all had similar equipment. And if something came up where it was perhaps a little bit more of a capital expenditure at the corporate level, we would decide which plant was best fit to sort of do that test program. And then they would report back. And if it made sense, we would implement, spend the capital and implement it at the other plants. But if you fast forward then to 2006, when I sort of moved out of one of our divisions into uh, I call it Samuel Proper at, at that time. You know, we tried to implement a couple of programs there. You know, one was successful, one really wasn't successful. And in both of those cases, it was more of an individual trying to sort of lead the charge. And again, with mixed results. And so then you fast forward even further on until... 2013, 2014, where we did have a another corporate energy team for, for Samuel as a whole, but it was focused mostly on the procurement side of things, not necessarily on, you know, the energy usage and efficiency. And again, you know, we saw we saw some limited success there with, you know, with being able to do some hedging and in that in deregulated markets. And in 2016, we sort of got a refresh. We seemed to get some more corporate buy-in, you know, had an executive sponsor. They sort of kick-started the corporate energy team off again. We brought in some new players, representatives from the manufacturing side our, and our service center side. We had engineering involved. We had accounting involved, some people from procurement. <clears throat> and, and that's when, you know, 2016, 2017 is when we really got really serious about it. And so we had the corporate program that was looking on the procurement, but then we had the opportunity to do a demonstration project where we got 11 of our larger sites involved. And we started off down with the team's approach with the energy coach. And then we, we proved that the team concept worked at these sites and we were able to expand it to, you know, to where we are now, where there's actually 34 sites that have their own individual energy teams that are 
you know, creating plans and implementing projects and reporting out on the result to senior leadership. So it it all sort of just evolved through past experience, but, but we really like the team approach. And when you're talking about a team, you're getting people, we, we try to make them cross-functional. So you're getting operations people, you're getting maintenance people. We try to get finance people. We're not always successful, but we've had inside sales people. We've got people that are, are not technical at all, but as long as they've got the enthusiasm, right? And I like to say continuous improvement mindset, they, they've been quite successful. And to try and burden one individual or a couple of individuals, especially when we're talking about an enterprise such as Samuel. I mentioned we had 90 locations. At the time that we started getting really serious about this, we were at about 100 locations. And you know we have since consolidated, but even 90 locations to try and have one or two individuals responsible for all that, it, it's almost near impossible. Just a quick follow-up on this, John. So you know, you've been doing this since 2016. Is the results using the team base sustainable? Or do you find, meaning, are the savings continuing year after year, or is that low-hanging fruit growing back with this? So, you know, I think to be to be realistic, you're depending on the site will depend on the answer, right? We have seen in the last couple of years turnover with within our teams. So you do sort of lose a little bit of that momentum. But for the most part, we are with our larger, and I'm speaking about our larger users. And, you know, probably the 80-20 rule applies where, you know, 20% of our plants are accounting for 80% of our consumption and and spend. We are seeing sustainable results. Um, Do we have a little bit of the fruit growing back? Absolutely. And that's one thing that that we always have to to remind the teams is don't get complacent because the fruit will grow back. You know, compressed air is a great is a great example of that, right? Is staying on top of your leaks and and all of that because you are going to develop more leaks, and so that's something that you need to to stay on top of. So it seems to me for our listeners, you know, yes, there's movement on the team. But there tends to be movement on energy managers. So if the energy manager leaves, then it just falls flat, period. But if you still have some team members still there, you can keep things moving along at some pace versus dropping it. Could I I just come in with a supplemental on that? And this, this... Is this going to be contentious? I don't know. Uh, not to you, John, but to, maybe to some of our listeners. We, we've known that there has been an approach by many, shall we say, authorities on energy management, that the energy manager is the solution. And one of the things that we've had is the classic case of somebody funding an embedded energy manager to work in a company for three years, maybe on a contract, and they, they are dropped in, given a single job to do, and out they go. And we, we found, I think, a number, a lot of people think, wow, I'm getting a free person for three years. I really should do that. Have you got any comment on that? We, we did look at the embedded manager program. We chose not to do it. What we did do, and I, I didn't mention this in you know, how we sort of got to the teams, but we did try in Ontario, they had a roving energy manager program whereby you were you were given access to an energy manager that was employed by the LDC. 
and and they helped a variety of companies. And we went through three REMs in a period of about 20 months. And it was disruptive because yes. <clears throat> these individuals were actually leaving to go off to consultants or or whatnot and not staying with the LDC. And so you talk about an energy manager getting up and leaving. Well, that's in a sense what was happening to us. And so after we lost the third one, it was like, you know, <clears throat> thanks, but no thanks. And and that is when, you know, we were we started to give more thought to this team approach. I guess one way of summing that up is if you're looking for an integrated solution, then a part-time or, or temporary role from somebody outside isn't really going to integrate properly, is it? No. Okay, I'll move on to, to, well, to my next question. And it's interesting because we've been talking about energy managers, which is a very traditional approach. And traditionally, the, the incentive or the reasoning for, for saving energy had been very much an internal aspect within the organization, perhaps just focused on we want to get our costs down. Now we're seeing energy talked and carbon talked about both inside the organization and outside. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a bit on the differences between the internal and external motivations to save energy and carbon. Sure. So, so John, you hit the nail on the head when you said it's, you know, it's about cost savings, because that was certainly what it was for Samuel when when we started looking at this you know we wanted to save on our consumption so we could save money so we could become more competitive in the marketplace but you know when we take a look at what else now motivates us you know with with climate change you know being talked about every day and on the front page we want to demonstrate our commitment to to the environment and being a good corporate citizen we want to meet our customer expectations because our customers are asking us now, what are you doing about greenhouse gases and carbon and water security? We have, we have a number of them that ask us to report out through a couple of the, the different reporting websites. So the Carbon Disclosure Project or, or Ecovatus. It's a risk management activity for us, you know, in terms of, on, especially on the supply side, you know, some of the hedging programs that, that we get involved with. It helps us to engage, you know, our employees at all levels and all disciplines. And we also find it helps us to attract and retain our current employees. We're finding more and more when we're out there interviewing especially I'll, I'll just say the younger generation they are really interested in what we are doing you know for the climate to help prevent climate change and, and so we're finding that that being able to say that you know we have these programs in place <clears throat> helps us when it comes to our our recruiting and then you know on the, again on the external side it's just a, a lot of our customers especially those customers that are that are public facing are, you know, they're, they're making commitments, you know, to go to net zero or, or whatnot, and they are engaging their supply chains on what, you know, we are doing about it as a supplier to them. And I think in some instances, we're even seeing that if you don't have, you know, documented programs in place that you're not, you, you run the risk of not being considered for, you know the various work that you're bidding on yeah i think i think that's interesting because in a way you started off the internal one was a 
about money and saving. And what's really happened now is what would have perhaps 10 years ago been regarded as doing good has effectively become monetized because it impacts on the business and what you need to do to, to satisfy your suppliers, regulators, insurers and others, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Thank you, John. John, our uh, crack research group has figured that you you work in eight provinces and, and, and 23 states and and so I, I've got a multi-layered question for you. Can you speak about the differences across the different locations as far as how do the sites and the teams approach energy and carbon? Can we start off with that if, if possible and I can drill in deeper if, if need be? Sure, so, so if, I, if I answer that question right now, it's different than how I might answer it in a few months. And, and the reason I say that is there, there there really isn't a large difference when we talk on, so we talked about energy management and there's two sides of it. So on the energy efficiency and usage, there, there doesn't matter what jurisdiction they're in, there's, there's not really a lot of attention sort of paid to, I'll call it the geographical region they're in. On the procurement side or the energy supply side, we operate in some deregulated markets. So, so we do go out for tender, you know, for electricity supply. We do do hedging on the natural gas supply. And, and that, that becomes a regional thing that, that we get involved in. And then we also operate in some regions where, you know, there's some sort of carbon tax. And so, so when I say that my answer might change, you know, months from now is that, that we are expecting to implement a, a carbon reduction strategy, a carbon reduction program, whereby, you know, depending on which location we're talking about, which geographical region, we definitely may be looking at a different approach. Fair enough. I want to follow up because I think many customers might believe that, you know, the on the supply side, that, that the deregulated marketplaces are the way to focus on the supply management. Have you had any experience or positive experience in regulated markets that you actually can do things to control your costs? And if so, can you give examples of things that have been done? And even in regulated markets with your teams, what have they done to actually improve their costs associated on that? Well, on in the regulated market so you know ontario is probably a good example there we do have some class a customers that are you know and some class b or sorry i shouldn't say class a customers some class a site and some class b sites so you get into the whole ga global adjustment discussion and so there are opportunities there you know if you're a class a customer to reduce your ga costs by shedding load during you know, chasing the five peaks, you know, trying to shed load, looking at, you know, other opportunities in terms of, you know, could you implement a battery system? Could you implement a generator of some sort, right, to, to try and reduce those peaks? So there, so there are opportunities in some of the other markets, you know, we talk about a demand response. We do have a couple of sites down in the U.S. that are, that do participate in those that, that helped to curtail and, and save some save some dollars. So there there are opportunities definitely in a in a in a regulated market. 
Yeah, so just for our listeners, the John's referring to ICI, that would be sort of like capacity markets. John mentioned demand response, which is a tool that's used by various utilities, regulated or deregulated, on how to mitigate demand during peak conditions. And then, John, certainly your experience in rate optimization, has your teams been involved when I talk about rates, utility rates? Have, have they played a factor in identifying what they could do on, on rate optimization as well? Yeah, we've, we've, had, we've had teams that have, that have brought those issues up and, you know, through, through the assistance with our, our consultant have been able to, to change rates or get into a different rate structure. And a lot of that goes back to, I'm going to say the training that, that the teams got at the start of this whole program with the energy coach that we were doing, right? They're, they re- they all received training and this all became part of it. And I, I truly believe it was through that training that it sparked some of the teams to, to take a look at this and get the consultant involved. So, so ultimately, I think a lot of, for our listeners, they think that it's strictly energy efficiency, which is a big focus for organizations to undertake, but actually organizations by understanding their usage with the teams, they actually can play a significant role in helping the corporate on the supply side. So uh, thanks thanks for sharing that. Before we move on for for the listeners, could we explain the difference between class A and class B? I'm sure it's not one's a better customer than the other. Can, Can we explain that? Sure. Do you want me to take a stab at it, Dave, or do you want to do it? I think it'd be best for you, John. So in a, in a nutshell, a, a class A uh, customer is, is a customer that has a, has a demand of 500 kilowatts or more. It started off at two meg, then I think it went to one meg, uh, and then it came down to, to 500 kilowatts. And so if they elect to opt in, because it is an opt-in program, there's a, there's a year-long monitoring period, and depending on how the site did, during that year-long monitoring period will affect what they pay for global adjustment charges in the following year. So it's sort of always a, <clears throat> a trailing type system. And so realistically, if, if a site were to hit, and it's all based on these five coincident peaks, so the five days in Ontario that have the highest demand, and ideally a site could if they hit all five peaks and they had zero consumption, they would not pay any GA charges for the following year. So that's where you might hear people, or you, I think you've heard me say, chase the peaks because, yeah. because they're trying to reduce consumption as much as they can during those coincident peaks to reduce their GA costs for the following year. Demand driven rather than usage threshold. Yes. Thank you. Okay, there are many elements to good en- to a good energy and carbon strategy, you know, uh, for a corporation to take in. It could be training, data collection, analysis, procurement, projects, etc. I, I suppose what I would like to ask you, what's the best combination or what priority do you put on that combination for Samuel? So, John, you hit that in terms of combination or timing, because... The elements that you all talked about are all very important elements in a strategy, <clears throat> but I think it's how you roll out those elements that that is critical. And so, in my mind, in my opinion, the two that are that are most important is having data 
and training. So, so when I talk about when I talk about data, I want to know, <clears throat> I want to have usage data, whether that's from the bills or interval data, or I'm doing I've done some submetering and I've got submetering data. I want to have production data. I want to have equipment data, perhaps nameplate data. So I've got a, a equipment inventory, and I want to have the bills, and then I want to have training on. So not only the data, but you want to have some analytics going along with the data. And then I want to have training for those people that are going to use the data because I want them to know how to read a bill. I want them to know what the different aspects of the utility bill are. And I want them to know how to interpret the data that they've got and be able to use that data to create a baseline for the site. And once we've got all of that, now you can start looking at the other elements in terms of building a strategy. But I, I really believe that you need data and training for your team before you start to look at your energy plan or your energy strategy. Yeah, that, that, that's, that sounds interesting. Supplemental to that with training, because I think all of us in this podcast believe in the value of training because you, you know knowledge is the key to all of these things and you were talking about training the team which is absolutely critical but what about extending training both upwards towards the the, the, the c-suite and downwards towards the shop floor so excuse me you you heard me you know mentioning about this new program that we expect to be rolling out part of that is training of our senior level executives so we're we are expecting I, i'm i really hope we make the announcement prior to this podcast going live or else our, our team members are going to hear about this before our ceo has had a chance to tell them but anyways we'll be, <laughs> we're going to be training 25 of our senior leaders it includes what we call our management committee as well as divisional presidents and regional vice presidents, depending on which business unit you're talking about. So we are we are going to be providing that training to to our senior leadership. We have done a little bit in the past, but it it definitely isn't going to be as as detailed as as this training will be. And then when we talk about the shop floor, so some of our energy teams do have shop floor members on on our teams. So, so they have, some of those individuals have received training. One of the things that most, if not all of our, our energy teams have done is there is some sort of energy board, a communication board that, that is out in the plant or in a lunchroom or, or somewhere yeah. where our plant employees are going to see it. So they're, we're sharing that information out with the plant employees. So it's all down to the power of knowledge, isn't it, in, in yes. some ways? Yeah. Thank you, John. Hey, for our last question, John, you briefly already touched on this, but how do you speak to your stakeholders about this work? For instance, banks, customers, suppliers? So let's start with with suppliers because that, that's an easy one right now. Right now, there isn't a lot of dialogue going on with with suppliers in in terms you know other than perhaps those that are providing us equipment and services that that have to do with energy management so you know maybe lighting vendors or hvac or compressors that sort of thing but you know if we if we talk about you know one of our our largest suppliers are our 
you know, the steel mills where we're buying, you know, quite a bit of our raw materials from. There, there really hasn't been any discussion with, with them yet. And I say yet because, you know, as, as we start to go down and develop our carbon strategy, then there's a good chance that we're going to start speaking with, with our suppliers as well. And, and that might even become a requirement from our customers, right? And so, so there, there has been a fair amount of dialogue with some of our customers and again they're the the larger public facing customers that have you know made commitments to net zero and are engaging their suppliers in terms of of what they're doing and a lot of that we're doing through reporting that is being requested of us so you know we're either reporting as i mentioned before through the carbon disclosure project cbp or through equivatus or even some of our smaller customers just have a, I'll just call it an in-house questionnaire that, 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 you know, it's sort of informal sending it out and, you know, asking us what, what we're doing, providing a little bit of proof on, on what we're doing. So I, I expect, and, you know, it's only been a few years since, since we've seen these requests. And again, we're not like, I'm not talking about a hundred requests, but, you know, we're, we're, we're talking perhaps 10 to 30 requests through the year, but in the past three years, it, it definitely hasn't been a linear relationship. It's been geometric and, and I see that only increasing, you know, as the, as the years go by. Well, thank you, John, for joining us on this week's podcast. It has been an excellent discussion. Any final words, Dave and John? John, I think I know that the information that you've shared with our listeners will be invaluable. And I think it's it's always nice to have someone who's been in doing this for some time to share what has worked and what hasn't worked. So thank you for, for sharing that information. You're welcome. Thank you. Again. Yes, thank you. Thanks, John. All right, talk soon. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Stay tuned for part two of this conversation next week. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune into our podcast on Apple Music and Spotify by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. See you next week.